Okay, so Ray, I always like to start, I want to ask because you're like Hall of Famer, all world, all everything. When did people start to notice that you were above average in basketball? Like when did the chatter start to talk about like, yo, this guy's really good? Probably uh, my freshman year uh, when I got to UConn. Uh, yeah well the guys would talk about it so uh, this is something that I don't share with a lot of people uh, but we I guess I had been uh, unremarkable up to this point like you remember how on campus when you have uh, the football game you work out first and then you go over to the football game uh, yep, yep. after when the football games were on campus yep, yep. and uh we we had like an open scrimmage uh, in preseason, and I don't know. I guess I was just so underwhelming up to that point where I, you know, I was getting steals, and and I started. You know, I was this guy that they said they didn't recognize anymore. And then afterwards, I put on a nice little jean outfit and some sunglasses. And we go to the football game, and uh, one of my teammates he goes, "Man, Hollywood has entered the building." So. So for, for that whole year, they started calling me Hollywood because they started seeing me like show up and show out. And I didn't really understand like you how- the way, the way that you dress. dress. Yeah. And so they started talking about me as, as a player, like somebody who, who really was gonna help. And I didn't know how I was gonna help because I was an 18 year old kid trying to you know make my mark from Hillcrest, oh, South Carolina, yeah. just come yeah. on the scene. Yeah. And That's so, crazy. so, you know, let's rewind before you even got to UConn. You and KG, were y'all on the same recruiting trip or what was y'all's connection to, to the recruiting trip? Was it UConn? Y'all was on the same recruiting trip? Yeah. Uh, KG and I, he was from the upper state, upper part of the state. So we had a guy that used to pick us up and take us over to, uh, we would work out in Columbia. Uh, we play against uh, the guys at USC. And so we ended up playing uh, AAU together. Uh, so uh, UConn was playing at NC State. So he and I got in the car and we drove to the game. We watched these guys play and, um, you know, just hung out. You know, uh, KG was, he was like, man, this is, I had already signed. Uh, so he was, he was like, encouraged and excited because he was like this is man this is cool like I you know this school is great you know so and you're then, so happy to see you have gotten, gotten a scholarship at a big school yeah yeah you and, didn't and, try to get him to come to the good side what's up well that's why I was going to say he ended up going to Chicago after that yeah you know he was in in uh in South Carolina and then he ended up getting recruited to play his senior year in Chicago and then you know the rest is history that's you know he wasn't even right. going to school so yeah. <laughs> he just he just cut that whole he, <laughs> straight to the business okay so we're both UConn alum talk to me about it because I came from West Virginia went to stores country you went, came from South Carolina went mm -hmm. to stores talk about just what that was like just culture wise everything like what was that like just getting there well my my background is so nondescript because I grew up in the in the military so yep. uh, I had come from California before I got to South Carolina. So I didn't really consider myself a country bumpkin as people would, they would call me. Uh, I did incorporate a little Southern accent uh, after having been there for, for five years. And, but it was interesting because in South Carolina, I wasn't from there. So they didn't claim me as being from there. And I still took on a lot of, you know, the effervescence of what the South was all about, you know, being there at those, impressionable uh, years of my life, you know, right. from middle school to, to high school. So a lot of my first happened there. So it, it does, it did build help, build into who I am. And, and even in the same token, if I don't go to South Carolina, I don't end up being the person or the man, the player that I am, because, you know, I had to navigate through being in the South. I had to develop a, 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 a thicker skin. Yes, yes. It made me a little bit tougher because everywhere I had been, you know, I, I, I grew up on military bases. So these places were, they were very controlled. Uh, people, everybody was rooting for you. Uh, you know, you had the best of everything. It was like being at a private school enclosed yeah. on a base. And, you know, we had the best lunches, the best textbooks, the best teachers, everything. So 
when I got to South Carolina, it was the opposite. It was and almost a downgrade, <laughs> not in nothing right. towards South Carolina, but if you're already getting that schooling and that treatment and that attention, then I feel like anything is almost a downgrade from there. Yeah. So every school that I had gone to was funded by the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. So you're talking on these military installations where, you know, when money is going to, you know, our troops, the military is providing for these installations all around the world. So the school systems that support the families that are there, the teachers typically are mothers and they get paid very well. Uh, so we, we had the best of everything. When I moved to South Carolina, we immediately now are going to a school that's off base. That is basically, you know, we have a segment of the military kids going there, but it's all civilian, civilian kids that are, are, are going to school and they're supported by the actual, the county, you know, and right, just right. like every other school, a lot of circumstances where these children are left behind you know the the teachers aren't very well paid you know schools aren't like you drink the water in the school and it it was like rust water um so you know when my mom dropped us off our first day coming from california she cried because it was nothing that we had ever uh experienced or or or, uh lived with uh up to that point but again my point if i never had gone through that yeah yeah I never would have been able to get to where I am because, you know, I had to learn there how to fight, how to uh, protect myself and yeah. really, you know. Did they, did they treat, treat you different because they knew they you came from military school? Like, is that one of the reasons or was it because you were the superstar or what? Like, what was, why were you out there fighting, Ray? Well, so the first, the first day I get there, I'm this kid coming from California and, mm. you know, I don't have a lot. There are five of us. Yeah. I'm wearing shorts to school. Like I don't have a lot of clothes. I'm wearing shorts. It was always, I lived in the desert in California. Right. right. Okay. So I'm walking down the hallway and, you know, people are calling me Bo. I'm like, Bo. What is, what that? is that? That's, that's, that's a racist term coined short for boy. So then everybody, everybody used the term Bo. What up, Bo? Bo. And I was like, I, I don't know what you guys have heard but my name is not Bo it's Ray and then you know I had you know people on me because that that first day I had on shorts so I got called to the principal's office my dad had something you had on shorts at that school you couldn't wear shorts you couldn't wear skirts you know because what I've also learned you know after that was that the kids there were faster than what I had was used to because two of the girls in, in my grade at that time were pregnant. Oh, okay. So, so, yeah, so they were they doing, were doing that, that almost, almost as like a, to keep everybody calm dress code. Yeah. And so the other thing too, is I came from an environment where, you know, they're teaching you so much about life and everything is, is, is conformed and is proper. So when I moved to South Carolina where, um, you know, some kids, are in my class that speak Geechee, literally, you know, and I'm this kid that's proper, you know, I've lived all over the world, like I lived in England, lived in Germany, and then now I come to South Carolina and the way I talk threw them off because everything that came out of my mouth was so proper. So they called me a white boy. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I didn't, and that's the thing. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I was like, "What? What is happening?" I had to deal with this. I never, ever in my wildest dreams could imagine going to school, and I had to fight all these stereotypes that were being thrown onto me. And I just was like, you know, my last school, I didn't. I just went to school, and everybody played with everybody, and you know, this was an issue. So, thirteen-year-old kid, it was, it was definitely. Uh, it was definitely heavier than what I had ever expected. So yeah. like I said, you, it's like, it's now you're fighting for some, for existence, yeah, you know, yeah. that, def- so, that definitely adds a little toughness and chip on your shoulder. I can see how that could develop you. Yeah. And so I remember, uh, I was in science class and one of the kids, he, he looked funny to me and I, I was just like in class and, and, and I said to one of these kids beside me, I said, this dude right there looks like a dinosaur. And, and I learned my lesson. I learned my lesson. Right. He, why did he blurt out and say, yo, the new kid said you look like a dinosaur. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and, and so the uh, homeboy wanted to throw blows. He waited for me outside the uh, outside the class in the hallway and uh-huh. was like ready to fight. And Did I just y'all fight? fight? Yeah, no, we didn't fight, but I just kept walking. I was like, I I I don't know. But this guy was like on a thousand, ready to go because you know at thirteen you don't yeah. you know everything is like I'm protecting my pride and and whatever little bit of manhood that you know, I've everyone else is starting to on you and that to be a thing so you have to stop it right there yeah wow that's crazy okay so you're at UConn unreal successful career because your jersey ends up getting retired what are your thoughts kind of going into draft day you know and it's crazy because I was just talking to Dominique Wilkins and Vince Carter on the Atlanta Hawks broadcast about just the draft day feels. Do you remember the people that you were drafted with? Like, what what was your feels going into that? Did you know you were going to be that number five pick? Like, what did you know about it going into it? So, th- there there was a draft party in New York. All my family was meeting me in uh, in New York. I had to fly to L.A. and I had to do uh, a, sh- a TV show just about leading up to the draft stuff. So all my workouts had had been done. So I, I, I worked out with uh, Philadelphia, who had the number one pick, uh, Vancouver, Toronto, and Milwaukee. Uh, as I was flying back to New York, I got a call. My agent said that Minnesota, who had the fifth pick, wanted to meet with me. And so I was like, there's no way. I need to be in New York. I have some events <laughs> that I got to go to. I'm not stopping in Minnesota on the way. Right. So I don't go. You know, I, I go to uh, New York. And I meet my family. And ironically, this is the first night where I meet my future wife. You know, I wanted to. Yeah. Um, so the next night going into the draft, it was speculated that I was going to go uh, number four to Milwaukee. And so before I head to the to the draft, I'm dressed and I'm, I'm you know, waiting before I catch the bus and go over and I get the phone rings. And it's ML Carr. And uh, Red Auerbach. Okay. Yeah, and they tell me if you if you make it to number five, then we're gonna pick you with the fifth pick. And so I was like, wow, yes, that means I'll still be in New England. Uh, I'll be a Celtic. And at that time, coming out of UConn, you know, Reggie Reggie Lewis was uh, he was an icon, you know. To, to a lot of us young players, a lot of us guards, and Definitely. certainly being a, uh, a UConn prodigy under Calhoun and knowing that he, that he coached them. Uh, so I was excited about that. Uh, so as the draft starts to unfold, one, two, three, and then I'm watching how it works. In the green room, you see the camera go to who the next pick is. Like on TV, you don't know until, <laughs> until you see the camera, but we okay. see in the green room where the cameras go. So we already kind of know in advance. So number three, mm-hmm. um, you know, we see uh, uh, the camera go over to uh, uh, Marcus Camby and he goes to Toronto. And then four comes and, and immediately I'm like, you know, I'm going to Milwaukee. I'm watching. Yeah, yeah this is my time. time. And the cameras go to Stefan Marbury. Yeah. So I'm thinking, hell yeah, I'm going to Boston. <laughs> like, because if, if Milwaukee picks me, yeah, I'm going to Milwaukee, but they're picking Steph, so I'm going to Boston because I already know Minnesota has J.R. Ryder. Right. right. So why would Minnesota pick me? So the fifth pick comes and the cameras come over to my table. And my heart just sunk to my chest or not to my chest, to my stomach. And I couldn't understand it for life of me why Minnesota would pick me at that time because I don't understand the business of of, of basketball. Uh, They they picked me and I was confused as I was sitting there because I don't know what's happening. And, you know, my family's like, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Like, it's going to work out. And I was like, I don't understand. So then I went and did, I went up there and I put the hat on and then I go downstairs and I start getting interviewed about what it's going to be like to play with J.R. Ryder. And I'm kind of bullshitting through the interview. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I, I, first of all, I don't know nothing about the organization. I prepared for this. You know, I didn't visit. Why would you pick me? You don't know anything about me. So 
Five minutes later, they tell us, hey, there's been a trade. So okay. now I just get drafted and now I'm traded. So now I'm even, I go further into a, a, a depression because now I've been, been traded already. So now I go to- Why did you know, go to depression? You, you felt like, like that like, changed your stock or your value? Like what, what made you sad about that? Because I didn't know when you, when a person gets traded, you assume as a young player that, you know, somebody doesn't want you and you're being traded. So it's, there's a negative connotation for me as a young yeah. player uh, that you're getting traded, uh, especially this early in my career. I don't even have a career yet. Right. right. So I ended up sitting there and then swapping hats with, 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 uh, with Marbury. And then, so now I go back to go over doing the interviews now I'm doing them with Milwaukee. Yeah. yeah. And Milwaukee, everybody in Milwaukee is booing the trade. I know, I you know you're lying. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm a man at this point without no home. I'm not happy at all. I was miserable because now I'm going to a place where nobody wants me. And so I was just like, man, you know, this day couldn't have been any worse because it wasn't what I expected. So, crazy. so and now seeing the draft and understanding the draft and understand the business and, and, and it's important to, to talk to young players, like the, the half the battle is making it here. We'll figure out wherever you go, how do we make it great? But that's the thing is it's, it's a, it's a moment of celebration. It's a moment of, of uh, vindication yeah. to, to, to just say, Hey, you did it. You know, everything that you've, every roadblock, every, uh, you know, naysayer that you've had in your life. Now, this is that moment of vindication where you get to walk on that stage and say, wow, look, I made it. And, and, and at that point I had, I guess, and I always tell young people this, when you get drafted, it's not, that's not the, the success. It's what you do once you get there because now you have yep. to put the work in. And I guess that was my mentality uh, then is I'm not happy that I'm here because it's time to put in work. And so that's probably why I was so uh, beside myself. But if I had to do it all over again, I would have certainly enjoyed it more and just so <laughs> the process a little bit, yeah. just a little bit more. Okay. So you, you are with Milwaukee. Everyone knows like about how amazing your career was, but I want to talk about Jordan brand real quick because you have a lifetime contract with them, right? Is that well, what they're would, called? Like, is it what is your because you are like Mr. Jo like we we recognize you as Jordan Brand. Like, you know what I mean? So what is what was that like? You're coming out of uh college. We were in Nike school at UConn, so it's already in the family pretty much. But what was that like? Just now you got now the you endorsement got deals coming in. Jordan, Jordan Brand, brand I mean, they're offering you the world. Well, there wasn't a Jordan brand when I first got out of college. Oh, oh. shut up. Yeah, no, there was there was no Jordan brand. So, so who, you signed with Nike first, and then mm -hmm. went into Jordan brand. Well, I I was about to sign with Fila, and I had visited Nike. You know, we were speaking with Reebok. Uh, there was small conversations with uh, with Adidas, mm -hmm. but Fila they had signed Grant Hill, and then the oh. following year they they signed St Jerry Stackhouse, and I had the same agent. So they so were they doing, doing things, things at that, that time, like they were like business was good. Yeah, and they were trying to really get in the market and compete. I think um, Grant was having success and the stack came in and they wanted to keep the success going. And so what happened was the money from Fila was a little bit more. Mm -hmm. and But they were placing criteria on me. Like I had to do so many things wow, my first yeah. year in order you to had keep. To meet. Yeah, the 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 it was a three year it was a five year deal after three it could be uh eradicated if i didn't meet the, these criteria that they yeah, placed on which like i you know there's like i had to be top two in scoring rebounding assists or steals on the team i'm like i don't <laughs> want those unreal expectations and then yeah. so uh the cover where we're on the cover of uh of slam magazine 1996 uh -huh. rap class I'm actually wearing Fila on my feet because I was going into training camp with Fila. And then we reversed field because I was like, I'm not signing that contract. And I revisited my Nike deal and they said, listen, you know, we're, we're thinking about putting you into this new line. Uh, we're starting a new brand called Jordan brand and you're going to be the first player that we're going to sign. That's going to do it. Yeah. So, so I was, so I didn't even, they didn't even have a shoe 
yet for me until later on into the beginning of the season where I first started wearing the uh, Jumpman Pro. The white shoe with the black around the lace. Yeah, I, don't know. I know what shoe you're talking about. Yeah, so that was my first shoe. And I was the first, one of the first players to wear it. That, that is, is so, so crazy. crazy. Okay, so fast forward now, you still have a relationship. You're retired with them. Like, do you get sent all the new releases? Like how many, okay, first of all, how many pairs of shoes? Do you have a guesstimate of how many pairs of shoes you have? uh like is that even pot like just give me a guesstimate like because well first i have to say that i remember <laughs> the kid that had i never wore a pair of jordan shoes in my life ever wow. See, uh, that's amazing. yeah so growing up it was like i seen other kids that had them yeah. you know you, you know when you went to the hoop court and you seen that person that had jordans on had and they everything had the sleeve the headband they <laughs> But couldn't Everything. hoop. But couldn't hoop. Like, they had the best stuff and they always like, you found me. I was like, man, you know, get your uh so uh I would say I have so much and, and I've been thankful because I, I still remember not having anything. So what I do yeah. is I try, I give away so much because oh, I know. Oh, I, and, 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 yeah, people, people better, better not, not that's not what it's about. I just know that sneakerheads love to hear about like, how many pairs of shoes do you have? Like, what is it like being on Team Jordan to the magnitude that you are? Like one of the first, one of the first signed player, like that's crazy. Yeah, so I, I it's definitely in the thousands, wow. thousands of shoes. Do they and, send you like the new releases when they come out too? Like, it's just, you're just on that list. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, and, and that's, I, that's amazing. But you built that yeah. because like you said, you remember being in South Carolina in shorts, you know? So I just, just to put it in perspective, like you like, earned you that. Earned that's, that. Something that's something that, that you had that yeah. chip on your shoulder, <laughs> shoulder grew on you. I love it. And I want to revisit your wife, Shannon, because I know you said you met her, you know, going to the draft party. Your wife be doing things, okay? She has a restaurant for organic, healthy food. Can you just tell me about that? It's called Grown. I love like, you know, setting spotlight, black owned business. Mm -hmm. So our now 14 year old, he has type one diabetes. Uh, he was diagnosed when we were uh, playing in the NBA finals in 08. And he, he, uh, he taught us so much. When you think the, I'm on this, the, the biggest stage of my life and then this happens, yeah. we had to uh, switch directions and try to figure out how to keep this, this young man alive. and. Uh, we were already on this path of trying to eat better and because it was always about what I was doing in my career and, you know, how I felt at the beginning of the game and if I could last through the fourth quarter and energy. So I was always trying to figure out what was the best formula for eating. And then this happened in 08 and it just took us to a whole nother level. And so as the kids started coming, she was the mother that was running around trying to figure out how to feed them, how to be at games for me, how to feed me. And then one moment when she had to go to a game and Walker had a low blood sugar, she has all these young boys in the car. You know, they're all within two years of age of each other. At the time it was three of them. And now we have five all together, uh, but she, she had nowhere to feed them. She, it was like, where do I go? Wow, yeah. To, to, you, you don't you can't take them to McDonald's. You can't take them to certain places because you yeah. want to feed them opportunities or options that allow them to have clean, healthy food, especially when he's dealing with what he's dealing with, you know, right. uh, this this condition. So uh, she said nobody, you know, fast food industry is failing us because we 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 make food for for ourselves because we're fast and we've compromised it being good for us and why we oh, live with yeah. so many issues. Yeah. So her, her, her saying was, if nobody's going to reinvent fast food, then I'm going to have to do it. And so, I love that. yeah, from that I day saw, forward. I saw a couple of the plates, salmon. And so basically it's fast food, but it's like homemade healthy food that you can get fast is what I, how I, how I see it because it's like nice full meals. And so for people, it's basically what people that want to meal prep, people that like to do those type of things, if you miss the week, you miss the day, like go grown, basically get grown, go grown. Yeah. And, and one of, one of the cornerstone ideas that, that I was, that both of us were, were kind of working on when we were, you know, it was, we were out in Seattle, we were trying to figure out what organic 
foods do we need to eat and what don't we need to eat organic. And as we've learned so much about food, we, we don't want anything that's, that's not organic because you understand how our food is being prepared. Like the, the food industry is, is doing us uh, uh, injustice. Yeah. Because we, we say if it's, if it's made in a plant, don't eat it. If it's made from a plant, eat it. You, you don't <laughs> want like so that. many things that, that are processed that have, you know, 50 million different ingredients on it, because what is it? It's not food at the end of the day. And, and then you're talking about people who are living with issues, conditions, diseases. And we're, 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 if you go back, think about 20, 30 years ago, we're so much more technologically advanced than we were 20, 30 years ago. Facts. Yet we are sicker. We, we have more issues. By 2024, 2025, you, one out of four people in the world will be affected by diabetes, meaning someone that you know in your life or someone around you will have diabetes. And so it's about how we, we, we manage our food because we're trying to find cures for everything, but the yeah. cure is in the prevention and how we eat. You can definitely eat yourself out of your situation is what I call it. And our community doesn't necessarily embrace that as much as I think we should. You talked about having one son Walker with diabetes. Well, you have another son now that's a great basketball player. What kind of dad are you going to be? Are you going to be that hands-on dad? That's like, what, what kind of dad are you going to be when it comes to your son in sports? Well, it's unfolding right in front of me as yeah. we speak. Offers uh, all over the place. Yeah, Walker, he played yesterday. He's 14. And uh, my 16-year-old, he plays. Uh, they have practice today, but he plays tomorrow. And, you know, I, I tried to tell them small little things every little day to, to, to let them kind of absorb some ideas. Uh, I don't – my 16-year-old, we – two, three years ago, he was like fighting me on everything. I, I remember just plain as day, we were in the gym and I'm telling him he's he's shooting free throws. Now, if, if this was an NBA court, you know how Jerry West is on the side of the backboard yeah. as a logo, he would have killed Jerry West on the backboard because he was shooting bricks like that. And, and oh I'm like, God. let me show you how to do it. And he was like, that doesn't feel right. I was like, just do it like this. He goes, I, I don't that, I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. And I looked at him and I said, do you think that I would tell you to do something the wrong way? I was just thinking you're only Ray Allen. One yeah. of the greatest shooters ever. And he kept, and he kept, he was in defiance. And I said, I said, buddy, I'm, I'm top 10 somewhere, top 15 Everywhere. all time in, in, in the NBA and free throws. I'm not going to discourage you. If you don't want me to help you, that's another issue. I won't help you. If you want to be helped, I'm going to help you. But if not, I'm, I'll walk away. So I walked away and he come, comes back and he says, dad, I, I want you to help me. And so what I started doing was I started not saying anything to him because he had to tell me that he wanted my yeah. help. He had to, it had to be from him. And so one of his, his friends, uh, dad played baseball and he's a hall of famer as well. And he was over his house. They live in our neighborhood and he comes into the room and he said, yo, to his son, let's go, let's go throw, uh, throw some uh, baseballs. You need some, get some bats, get some at bats. So he comes home and he says to my wife, he goes, mom, how come dad never asks me to shoot? <clears throat> <laughs> because, because what happens is it's the peer pressure of those around him as people yeah. are starting to start to lift themselves up and be something uh, amazing in their own right, aside from their parents. And she said clearly to him, she goes, Ray, he's waiting for you because this has your dream. This has to be your desire. This has to be your motivation and ambition. He's not going to come to you if you don't want it because people expect that he's supposed to hover over you and, and force you to do this. But no, this has got to be yours. Like nobody pushed me to become great or to be to work out every day or to hoop every day. These, these were my desires. You know, I didn't have a trainer. I didn't have a rebound machine. I didn't even own a basketball. You know, these were all things that you figure out. Now kids are like, oh, I need a trainer. If, I, if I'm going to make no, the team, I need a trainer. Yeah, I'm like, no, you know, you don't need anything other than just your desire and your will to want to compete. And no matter where you are, <laughs> West Virginia, South Carolina, they will find you. Yep, I love that. Okay, so I have a couple of questions when it involves 
three-point shooting contest because I'm curious first of all what's your thoughts on Steph Curry you know just changing the game your name is always brought up a Reggie Miller are always brought up in Steph Curry and what he's done for the game and we know he's about to pass he's passing every record as we speak what are just your thoughts on him and how he's changed the game well it's interesting because Reggie and I when when I broke his record I didn't even know it was a thing because it wasn't a thing and then when it came to me that it was about to be a thing I I just I was overwhelmed because I was trying to to push myself or put myself in the place of of the annals of NBA history like all the great shooters that I uh, knew understood respected and grew up watching so I just didn't understand how it could be me Um, but it's about being available it's about you know, showing up every day. It's about keeping yourself uh, healthy. And that was the work, the first thing I wanted to do when I got to the NBA, because I didn't know if I was going to be good or not, but I, I wanted to be somebody who my teammates could count on every single day. And so with that, I tell every child, number one key to being successful. And everybody asks me the question and they say, oh, commitment, you know, working hard. And I said, no, the number one key to being successful is being available. Because you can't do any of those things if you don't show up. Because a lot of times guys get sick, they take a day off. Oh, I don't want to do it today. Like I scored 30. I don't want to work. No, every single day you have to, you have to do it. And so that's what, you know, when I look at Reggie, he was always in the gym when I came into the gym and that legacy continued with me. And so kids, you know, they came into the league, they saw that uh, with me and my work habits. And, and so uh, Steph was a young kid and I played with his dad in Milwaukee. So he was in the gym shooting with us. And he certainly, uh, the, the things that he does, you know, are amazing out on, on the court. And he, he's, he set a bar different from what Reggie and myself have said, because we played the game differently. He, he had, well, the he game thought, was different than three pointers. Like it wasn't a premium coaches didn't center anything or everything. The three. So it's a different, that was a whole different time then. Yeah. And that's why it's important. Uh, people want to always judge or gauge generational players. And it's important that you just recognize because without Reggie, I don't know how to do what I do. And then same thing with Steph. So it's not, you know, we, we always want to like figure out who's better and how it's like, you just have to honor because, you know, uh, Jordan's DNA is in LeBron. It's in Kobe. So when you know that for everybody that understands that you're supposed to say, well, you know, it, this makes Jordan the greatest of all time because everybody wanted to be like Mike. And so you take that and you build into who you are and you take it to another level. So every player should humbly say like, listen, I'm no better than the, the, the guys before me because they've allowed me, they've given me the, the, the creative license and vision to uh, achieve the, the levels I've been able to, to, to uh, rise to based on their example. And so that's what Steph is doing now for generations underneath him. Kids are seeing what he's doing and he's raising a bar and allowing these kids to now have something even more to, to uh, ascertain to. But I, I will say it's, it is, it's harder for these kids with Steph because, you know, Steph has the ultra green light. And when he yeah. shoots, he's shooting in really tough situations that you don't want kids at a high school level to be practicing <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it does require kids to fundamentally pay attention to the game and get those those fundamental skill sets first. No, you know what you said. I, I feel like that when I went to UConn, like if people are talking about how well I played at UConn, the player I was at UConn. Well, then we got to talk about the other point guards before me, the Jen Rosati's, the Sue Birds, all of them. So I completely agree. I have to ask because you have hit some of the most cold blooded threes in the history of the NBA. I know because I'm a shooter, but what goes through your head? Like during those times, do you know the ball is coming to you? Are you just staying ready? Like you've hit some iconic threes, can't even narrow them down. But I think of Miami, Miami is one that I really think of because that changed the whole course of everything when you hit that three and gave you guys life. What's going through your head at that time? The ball's got to come around. And when it, when it comes around, uh, one of the philosophies I've always lived with is that the ball fires the movement. You know, don't let grass grow under your feet. So the whole point when I was at the uh, at the three-point line is 
to go in and get the rebound because sitting at the three-point line is not going to do me any favors, like sitting there thinking the ball can come. So I have to create some action or some energy. That's exactly I ran in, get the rebound, and then now you relocate yourself to the three-point line. The best time to shoot a three is, is off offensive rebound. Offensive rebound. Yeah. yeah, and because everybody scatters, and then when your man looks, you're no longer in the same place. That's why you don't stand in the same place. You move somewhere else. Um, being prepared and having your feet ready, that's the one thing that I look at all shooters. You know, when, when I'm watching kids, young kids, or even in the NBA, so many guys aren't ready. You know, so when you when you're not ready, you have to get ready and then getting ready causes you a second to get your shot blocked or you're going to have to drive the ball now because your feet weren't ready and the guy recovered. So that is that is the ultimate thing is to because when when I notice the ball may be coming now, I get in a position where I only have to go one way and that's up. So everything else is is working. People say you get your shot so fast. I was like, no, it's it's my feet you know, my feet are the ones that are moving so fast. So as, as I'm turning into a shot, as I'm turning the corner, my body, my lower body's already turning. So when I catch it, I can just go right up and it kind of, you know, it's like a twisting motion where the rest of the body just falls through and I can get it off. Okay. So I have to ask this too, because when we're talking about iconicness, you are Jesus Shuttlesworth. To a lot of people, that's what you forever be Jesus Shuttlesworth. <laughs> yeah. What was, how did that come about? Like, how did you get that role? This was after my rookie year. Uh, Spike was coming out with the movie uh, that I didn't know anything about. And we were in New York. So Spike, you know, Spike's his uh, course side heckling everybody. And at this time, I remember in the, in the first uh, part of the season, we played the Knicks and Allen must have had 20 points at the half. And Spike was over there giving me giving me hell because he was like, man, you're going to guard Allen tonight. What are you going to do? He's bragging you. So we we play in the garden in april and you know my rookie year uh we're not making the playoffs you know we're on the way home and and alan had a he had a good first half nothing great and spike is over there trying to get my attention and i'm avoiding him because i'm like he's gonna talk shit to me about about alan so i'm like let me just keep him and he walks over there tries to get me and i'm like moving i could feel he's trying to be around me i'm like he's so then he finally gets me somebody taps me and says spike wants you i go over there and he says hey i'm uh, I'm doing a movie, a basketball movie, and I, and, and I want you to, to audition. You know, there's a couple different parts, um, and I would like you to audition uh, and see if you'd like to be in it. And so and you've never acted before this? No. I mean, I've done plays as a, in middle school, but I've never really formally acted. Um, and then he, he, we exchanged. I gave my number. He called my guy, and then they set it up. And this, the season was over. And a couple of weeks later, I left Milwaukee. I was in Connecticut for the summer, and I drove down and I came in for interviews. And you know, I didn't know what was going to come of it. Uh, I ended, came down like three times, and then he offered me the part, the main part. Yeah. And and so you didn't even know you were auditioning for the main part. Well, he yes, I was auditioning for the main role of Jesus. But he also said, if you don't get the main role, there's other roles of characters, his teammates and other people in the movie that you could potentially uh, uh, secure the role, the lead for. So I was just going in reading and figuring out like the first time I went in and I read was Sally Richardson. And yeah. she was she was auditioning for La La the movie and and, and then Nicole Parker was auditioning for, for La La. So I had to do scenes with both of them, they're actresses. Yeah, I had to do these scenes with them and I had to get real like comfortable and cozy with them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And and then my third my third uh, read was with Denzel. And that so here's is, so tell me, like, what was that like? With, is, this is Denzel. Yeah. So he I'm, re, you know, I'm, I'm in the NBA now. So I've been around, you know, True. a lot of players like been around Michael Jordan. To me, he was like the 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 pinnacle of success or celebrity for me meeting uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, and so I got over that and understanding that, but it's still such a, an honor and a privilege. So when Denzel walks into the room, I just couldn't believe it, but I was still cool because, you know, I, I'm just a normal everyday person. And I just was like, you know, once you see him, I couldn't believe it. And I started thinking about all the things that I seen him in and how much of a fan that I was of his. And so we we read the scenes and he immediately he immediately started calling me son like you know son like filling out this role of him being him being my dad because obviously he's 
uh, the main character. And so it, it was comfortable. Like we, we had such a, uh, a good rapport. And so, but here's the funny part. I don't know what's going to come of this. I don't even know how it works to, to get a major movie like this. Yeah. You know, obviously I kept getting asked back and he wanted to see what I looked like uh, uh, around a couple of different people. And then I was in Connecticut and I was willing to commit. That was the last thing he said, are you willing to commit to this for the whole summer? Because you're going to lose your whole summer. That's what I was going to say. How long did it take the film? Yeah. So I had, you know, in May I had to start acting classes. So I was in a studio apartment in New York, like working with this acting coach that was you know they put me up in an apartment in a village and so I was going to take these classes and and when we first started shooting if it's everything it's pre-production they have to figure out what clothes you're going to wear like which side is your best side color and all this stuff and then you got to go through these reads with the whole cast and then you know once he's assembled the whole cast we're all sitting around the table and we read through the whole script um and then once they start shooting like we started shooting in uh uh, the first scene was like in, in, in Coney Island, we shot the basketball scene. And then like the last scene, we shot campus, you know, college campus. And that was right before I went to training camp. So I re- legitimately wrapped uh, in, in October. So I went from, I went from May all the way May till to October. October. Yeah. So I was working the whole summer and, and I'm so thankful that, that I did that because there are a lot of guys that didn't want to give up the, the time because they wanted their summer. They wanted to, you, when you look back at it in hindsight, you ask yourself, what did I do? What would I have done? You made yourself available. That's that yeah, thing you talked you about. Make yourself available. That's how you become successful. But going back to Denzel. So after we did the, the, the scene, we were, uh, he was talking about, he had somewhere that he had to go and, um, I said, we can give you a ride because we had a we had a limo outside, you know, a friend of ours in Connecticut, you know, Ambassador Limousine, you know, we had a relationship with Yukon. So yeah. we had a car service that happened to be a limo. Nobody rides limos anymore. No one takes Yeah. Them. And that's why it's funny. Like you had a limo. Yeah. Limo. Uh, <laughs> so we was like, we can give you a ride. So I'm like, cool. So we're giving Denzel Washington a ride, you know, to, to his hotel. So we're in the car just riding down the street. And I'm just like, sitting here and I was like, so this is how, you know, the big guys do it. You ride in the limo and I'm riding with Denzel here. And uh, Denzel looks out the window and he says, you know what? Uh, I'm going to get out right here. He's by himself. Uh We're somewhere, we're somewhere on the east side, like Tribeca area. He was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to get out and I'm going to take off. And he's got Afro. This is when he's getting ready for the roll. So his stuff is out to here. So I was like, you sure? He's like, yeah, I can walk the rest of the way. He gets out of the car and he goes to the side of the street and he's walking and he comes to the, the end of the street and it's a stoplight. And, you know, he's standing next to people. I was like, oh, I wonder if these people know that's Denzel. And then I look across the street and there's like four women across the street and they look up and they go bonkers because they see him. And I was like, bad move and then he greeted them and then he kept it moving and the girl you know nobody had camera phones back then yeah you know, nobody had cell phones this was well people some people did but not it wasn't like it is now so he gave they hugged him and then you know they just, just like they couldn't believe it and then he kept moving i was like wow that's new york for you to be able where to was see. he going he was just walking back to his hotel but you know he lives in california so New York gives you that that sense of of adventure and, and freedom when you can walk down the streets and and you know see so much and see so many yeah. different types of people and I think he wanted that sense of he was of probably studying freedom. too like I feel like everything he does is almost like he was probably studying New York the vibes yeah yeah I would, wow. I would right I thank you thank you thank you for talking to me honestly like I I could have talked to you like I feel like we were just having a conversation I was asking you everything but you recorded I, all I that appreciate huh. That was all recorded. I thought we were just having a conversation. (laughs) No, we are. But it's just like, I want to ask you everything because I think that people should hear you have a crazy story. And I mean, crazy in the best way possible. And so I want people like see something just popped in my head now that I have to ask you real quick. You told me to and Drew Holiday that we need to make sure we tell our own story. We need to write a book and tell our own story. Why do you say that? That why is that important? Uh, So many different reasons. So I always feel bad because I, I was born in this era where 
you know, you could pull up my clips on YouTube or, or, you know, they'll, they'll flash on Instagram and people will send me things that I did. And the, you know, they have that connectivity to, you know, my college years. I have a buddy of mine that sends me all these clips on Twitter from when we played at, at, at UConn. So how many that don't have that, you know, we, we see only a few clips from Dr. J, only a few from Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain. They're like the same clips because they weren't covered the way we are and specifically those today. Uh, so what happens is, is there's a generation of, of black people who we don't know. Uh, that's why Black History Month is so important. You know, it's important, you know, we live our history all year long, but in February, we have the opportunity to allow other people to tell our stories because there are so many people that have been so impactful in the, the building of this world, not just America, but in this world. And it's no slight to anybody else that, you know, we're talking about just black people, but I want people to remember for the longest time, we haven't been able to read, you know, it was illegal to read, to write, to learn, to use a restroom in a, in a, in a city or, or, or a restaurant. Those things were illegal. You know, it wasn't like, we couldn't do them. We were told we would be killed and we were killed in a lot of instances if we did them. And so uh, a friend of my, my, my accountant, he tells me this story all the time. He said his mother, uh, she, she, the insurance man, when they have insurance man, men, they would come uh, to the neighborhood every Friday and they collect uh, money for insurance. And he had to pay, she had to pay a quarter every Friday and her policy was only worth a thousand dollars. And her whole life she paid a quarter way over the policy. And if she no longer paid that quarter, her policy would lapse. Even though she's paid way over the policy, that's yeah. all it was worth was a thousand dollars. Yeah, she's covered it. Yes, but but the way the way they did black folks in the history of this this country, they they didn't allow us to amass any wealth. We didn't, we couldn't buy homes in certain neighborhoods. So we couldn't, we couldn't carry mortgages. So we couldn't put our kids through Scott College. When you look at, you know, you know, the average person in America, the white person, like you, if you, if you bought a home in a neighborhood that whose value went up, you use that to put your kids through college. You know, whether you, you had an average job where you were working and your, your wife was working, you were still able to put your kids through college because you could take out a mortgage on your home and the value of your homes continued to go up. And that's how wealth has been transferred down through generations. And so stories also do the same thing, you know, to understand our, 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 our brilliance, to understand our legacies, we have to transfer what we've done, what we know, who we are, across the generation. There's a story about how black people in coastal communities all up and down the South, their properties have been taken away from them because they didn't properly, based on societal laws, have an estate plan to transfer their property to their generational, to their kin. So they're, you know, there's a story about a family in North Carolina. They have fishing on their land. They have juke joints on their land. They have, uh, 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 farms on their land but somebody the family member the original family member that owned it died and so now the state has been trying to take that land away from them and developers have been coming onto that land trying to figure out how to parcel this land apart so they could build resorts on it you know it's like these people want to take their property from them and this has happened you know Key Biscayne used to be you know black owned territory you can go all up and down the, the eastern seaboard down to the south and see those same stories and so when people get write books and tell their stories. They tell the history of their, the legacy of their families. Uh, the, the, the great legacies that we have been told that we couldn't talk about, that we couldn't write down, that we couldn't remember. You know, transferring knowledge is wealth. And so each of us black and brown people have to make sure that we tell our stories because if we don't tell our stories through books, somebody else will tell them and nine times out of 10, they're gonna get it wrong, one. And then two, now, think about this, because this is super important. When you write a book, how do movies become movies? Yeah, they transcribe books, books. they turn into visuals. Right. So when we write books, that's how books turn into movies. And then when you have stories about black and brown people in America and around the world that, that turn into movies, what happens in the movies? Now you have to have a black athlete or 
a, act, a black act, actress or actor portray. So now you're giving more black people in Hollywood jobs because there's more stories being told, which thus then gives the, the, the diversity that we're looking for in our world because young black and brown people, when you see movies where there are black people, it's not that we haven't helped build this country, it's just that our stories haven't been told. So now we're allowing black folks to be acting where there's diversity, where you're saying, okay, yeah, I could see this black person as a doctor, Dr. Charles Drew, you know, is a, is a black man, but his story has never been told because he hasn't, I don't know, I'm sure he's, he has literature somewhere that tells a story, but did he write it? You know, did he tell his story? Did his family pass it down? Like, I'm sure there's something interesting about his story that we should know, that we should learn, that can be a story. And it gives somebody work in Hollywood that then allows America to see the diversity in how this country was built. Beautiful. The transfer of knowledge is wealth. I'm going to keep that with me because that's important. I think it's so important. Ever since you told me the first time, it stuck with me. So definitely going to do that. And Ray, thank you so much for joining me on Remotely, Renee. Yeah, thank you for having me, Renee. Awesome to talk to you. And uh, UConn alum, I'm, I'm so proud of you and happy with everything you're doing and continue to do. So let's keep giving them hell. This is Matt Rogers. And this is Bowen Yang. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community community. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.